This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit with your host, Pat McMahon. Well, if you've been listening over either the last few weeks on the Star Worldwide Networks or the last 16, 17 years that we've been doing The God Show, you may notice that on the opening it doesn't say this is a program about religion or a specific focus on one's faith because one's faith can be dramatically different than that other guy's faith over there. And what happens if they learn to get along? Well, then that must be because they've been listening to The God Show. Hey, listen, this is this is a really fun thing for me to be able to say because so many people are brand new to the program. And I don't mean just the listeners. I'm talking about our guests, people that I haven't met before that we've found that we knew would be interested. You're Rosemary Scarfo, my producer for all of these years, digs deep into all the possibilities that there are to develop exactly what the announcer fellow just said, a greater understanding of one's own spirit and the expression thereof. In this case, she didn't have to dig further than let's get Rabbi Brad Hirschfield on because he's been a regular guest on this program over the years because he's so doggone good. And I didn't even need to know that Newsweek has called him one of America's 50 most influential rabbis. Who's number one, Rabbi Brad? It depends if you ask my mother. (laughs) Newsweek wasn't taking any chance. They just said among the top 50, right? Yeah, no, there is a list. They did it for a number of years. I was in it a number of years. I was never number one. I was never number 50. You float somewhere in between. Um, and I think the interesting thing about that story is not to toot my own horn. And first I want to say, Pat, it is always a pleasure and an honor to be able to join you and to join your audience. Because I know it's a very special audience that, that follows you and listens to you and is in contact with you. So I really am pleased to be able to join you. I think what's most interesting about that Newsweek deal is that to live at a time when Newsweek magazine, hardly a Jewish publication, (laughs) hardly a publication so interested in spirituality or religiosity per se, is even making lists of influential clergy, says a lot about how incredibly interested Americans are in religion and spirituality. We may not be going to church or synagogue as often as we once did, but that has nothing to do with the kind of deep spiritual intellectual hunger that gets met in all kinds of places, including this show. And even Newsweek magazine knew that, and that's why they were making that list. And, of course, uh, the audience here and your congregations and people throughout the world because of your travels know you maybe primarily from the book You Don't Have to Be Wrong for Me to Be Right, subtitled Finding Faith Without Fanaticism. But don't you feel that fanaticism has returned and returned strongly, Brad? Oh, there's no question. I'm not even sure it ever really left. (laughs) Um, I think it relocates and regarbs itself, but I do feel it's very present. 
I think really if you're asking me a kind of on the sociologist analysis of, of the modern era, what happened is we drove faith from the public square. And actually that wasn't so good for people because whether you consider yourself religious or not, most people do still believe in some kind of God or higher power. They want to connect to something larger than themselves, and they do, whatever the frame or the language they use to do it. And driving that out of public discourse, which has nothing to do with the high wall between church and state, which I believe in, actually didn't serve people well. And so religion came storming back. And in storming back, it came back with a vengeance in many places and in many traditions. And so I think you're right. I think the fanatic spirit came back to try and say, you know, in the 19th and 20th centuries, you tried to drive faith out. We'll show you. And I think now there is a real struggle. Can spirit, can faith, can religion, can spirituality be reintegrated not only into our private lives but our public culture and as we do that still stand strong against any of the fanaticisms which believe that they are a hundred percent right a hundred percent of the time for a hundred percent of people because however beautiful the school of thought you follow may be and I say this to myself and I'm letting you listen because it's true for my tradition too when any tradition believes that it has all the answers for all people at all times, it never comes to a good end. And yet when they're willing to be humble enough to say, well, we don't have every answer for every person for every time, but boy, do we have some interesting, beautiful insights to share with anyone who wants them, then religion actually has a profoundly important place to play, not only in our inner lives, but in our public culture as well. But Rabbi Brad... What can religion do, any religion, any organized faith, what can, what can a group of very sincere leaders mm -hmm. do with a population here and elsewhere who feel that now they have permission to say and do things that were not acceptable before? I guess we need to be a little more specific, and I would ask you, Pat, at, at the risk of trying to drill into one particular issue or one particular community, who are you talking about? Because permission to say more things, I actually believe, on balance, is good. I think that's part of the promise and premise of America. And that's free speech and the freedom of speech, particularly for a broadcaster like me, having been doing this now for 163 years, uh, the idea of being able to share thoughts and to be totally free without the restrictions uh, that uh, that so often in the past were placed on broadcasters is right. wonderful. I'm talking about the people now either running for public office or marching in the streets or just simply the guy that comes over to your party and says for the first time that he feels that black people really aren't as advanced as right. white people. He doesn't feel that Jews really behave in such a way that they should be considered the equal of Christians. Mm -hmm. Those are the people I'm talking about who were not heard before, at least not loudly in my lifetime, right. 
And now somehow they seem to be crawling out of the woodwork. I think that's right. Um, I guess what I would say is that I think Louis Brandeis had it right when he spoke from the bench of the Supreme Court and suggested that sunlight was the best disinfectant we have. I'm willing to listen to people say outrageous things. In fact, I'm very concerned when people think that hate speech laws are the solution to the problem that we face. Because my experience and my belief is that when you tell people they're not allowed to say things, all you've made sure of is that you don't have to hear them. They're going to keep saying them anyway. They'll just be saying them out of your earshot. Now, that doesn't mean I think it's appropriate to say things that inspire violence directly. You can't. It's illegal. The fact that we have free speech doesn't mean we have totally unfettered speech. You're right. People now have the freedom and feel emboldened to say some pretty horrible stuff that we haven't heard before. That said, I don't think it's new that they feel it. I want them to say it. I want to engage with them. I want us to talk about it. And I'm not afraid. Well, aren't you, Brad, dignifying them by engaging them? No. What I'm doing is taking seriously that we have a real struggle going on in our country right now between people who genuinely believe that just because they can say something, they have permission to say it. That's never been true. That's not a constitutional position. And other people saying, well, I don't like hearing that. It hurts my feelings, so you shouldn't be allowed to say it. That's also not the Constitution. We're now in a place where we're going to have to figure out what is the ethic of listening to things we don't like to hear and engaging people who genuinely feel even terrible things and then also being willing to say to them, do you ever ask yourself that just because you can say something doesn't mean you should say it? As long as you're not talking about somebody who's currently being arrested by the authorities where you are and that siren going by, wherever it is. <laughs> yeah, well, that is what it means to live in New York City. <laughs> the, the, the most muted of, of, of phones will pick some of that up. Now, I'm not being arrested, though I understand that that last rift probably alienated both conservatives and liberals alike, but I think that's part of the problem you're talking about. We have become so siloed that actually no one really wants to hear anything they don't already agree with. No, and as a matter of fact, actually really dangerous. alienating both the conservatives and the liberals is exactly what I stand for, because then it seems we're probably doing something right. I couldn't agree more. Uh, by the way, that is the longest siren I think I have heard in the history of law enforcement. I have no, it's more than one. I don't know what's going on, but I don't smell smoke, so I'm staying by my phone. Good. Now, listen, on a serious basis, talking about some of the specific people who are speaking out and were not allowed in their society and their community by their government to do this, now are speaking out in Germany. A friend of mine... Uh, was just uh, in Berlin and Bonn, and he had an opportunity to see Parliament and to watch Parliament in action. And he said, I asked what this group of seats that were unoccupied, who those people were, why aren't they there? And he was told they're not allowed to show up because those are the people who won 
who are the contemporary Nazis, the National Socialist Group, that is beginning to develop some strength in, of all places, Germany. Brad, how the hell could that happen again? Oh, look, how it happens is actually a pretty straightforward answer. The world is changing faster than any time that we know of, and people are scared. And when people are scared, they turn inward. And while I understand that response, that perverse expression of it is not likely, in my view, to be addressed by simply saying, you're doing something perverse. They are. But wouldn't it be interesting if we said, okay, here are the rules. You can be seated here, but there are rules about what you can say. And if you can't interact based on those rules, then you can't be. And the first thing we want to hear you say in public, what is it that you're so afraid of that you believe hate is the best response? Because I want everyone who feels hateful toward anyone to simply ask themselves, has hatred ever given rise to the best possible response to the threats, real or perceived, that you think we face? But in the late 30s and then through the 40s, that was answered by an extremely... Um, an extremely violent and hateful group of people. But I'm thinking in terms of when the National Socialist Party came into power in Germany, it was an economic thing, as I recall from history. It was an economic thing because of the insanity of inflation that was taking place in Germany at that time. It was people having to pay $55 for a loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. And somebody came along and said, wait, I'm going to fix this. All you have to do is follow me. Mm-hmm. That didn't so, work out too well for the world. No, of course not. But what that means is then you're actually proving my point. Because if people have real concerns, someone, right, nature abhors a void or a vacuum. If people who are moving toward Nazi views are doing so, we would have to learn the lessons of the past and know three things. Thing number one, they are probably moving in that direction, not because they actually deeply believe the ideology first, but because they have some terrible panic, some real need that has to be met. So we would have to take that need seriously. We would have to become genuinely curious about the underlying motivations of people who are saying and doing despicable things. That's number one. Number two, we would have to insist that to have their need met, they will have to become productive partners in a community that includes people they don't really want to be with. But if they don't want to do that, then they're not going to get what they want because there's no free lunch in this world, not for any of us. And number three, we will have to be very clear that the same hand that reaches out in peace and in love can become a fist when it needs to be. And that's the last piece that we're going to have to address in our culture. If the people who understand that sometimes you do have to fight, 
always rush to fight will be at war forever. If the people who know that fighting is a terrible option don't make it clear that there are times you get beyond talking and there's nothing to do but fight evil physically if necessary, then evil could actually win. We need to have both the hand that can open and reach out across aisles and also that same hand be ready to turn into a fist when it needs to be. My guess is, though no one can tell you exactly which is when, if we're in the business of being both, then actually we have a shot at both responding appropriately to the real threats that are rising in the world now in unprecedented ways, and in doing so without ending up in another world war. Dr. Doctor, I've actually given you a doctorate here just because of the brilliance (laughs) of the first few minutes of this program. Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, do you believe that in this country, where freedom really is abundant, that a business should be able to practice bias in who they do business with, to whom they sell, uh, to whom they cater? I guess the answer for me lies in a much more situational kind of response. So I think if doing business with someone overtly puts you in the position of participating with them in something you find morally reprehensible, then you have a right, I believe, to say no. That's part of honoring individual and often religious rights. If saying no to them is simply on the basis of who they are, what religion they follow, what color their skin may be, who they choose to make a life in partnership with, then no, you don't have that right. We don't make those distinctions in this country. So to make it very practical and very overt, because I'm not good at dancing around things, if a gay couple comes in and asks a baker to bake them a cake for their wedding, and all that they are asking to do is bake a cake that happens to be white and multi-tiered, I see no basis to deny them the right to that cake. On the other hand, I can imagine the baker having the right to say, I don't want to put a husband and husband on top of that cake. I don't want to write the words, happy wedding, to Marvin and Sam. In other words, I think that both sides are going to need to give a little for us to get a lot. And unfortunately, although the courts have a role to play in this, litigation and its inherently adversarial nature are probably not the best way to deal with this long term. Is that coming from your decision not to perform gay marriages? Is that a form of bias? It may be. And as much as I feel bound not to perform those marriages, by my read of traditional Jewish law, I also celebrate the legalization of gay marriage in, a, in this country. I also admit, and have written in that book you mentioned before, you don't have to be wrong for me to be right, that I believe that decision, and I want to be clear, decisions can change, that that current decision may be one of the few things I really do worry that if there is a God in heaven who will judge me when I leave this earth, 
it may be at the top of the list when God says, really, Hirschfield, you couldn't figure out how to read my word to perform that same-sex marriage? What was wrong with you? And I really do live with that fear. God sounds very Jewish when you quote him. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I think God's bigger than any one, any one religion. Uh, but I think that's what we need. We need people who will not perform same-sex marriages to celebrate the legality of doing so. Because if you can only celebrate what you will do, you are a fanatic. And we need people who do perform them to be a bit more understanding of the fact that probably most people are doing their best to ask what God wants of them. And even if they're getting it wrong, even if I'm getting it wrong in making this one decision, it might be worth not judging me as harshly as some will. And that's, again, the work we both have to do. And by the way, I actually believe if every clergy person in this country who does not perform same-sex marriages would be on the front lines of defending that right and defending their colleagues who do and defending those gay couples who want a state-recognized and a religion-recognized marriage, if those same clergy who can't perform the ceremony because of their view would support that couple's right, my guess is a lot of these problems would go away. And that is part of my obligation, to protect the rights of others, to exercise the life they feel called to lead, even if it's not the one I feel called to lead. Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, uh, listen, we've done this so many times. I feel comfortable opening up the door of the God Show time machine. And you, okay. jump, you jump in, but just go back a few years um, to Mr. and Mrs. Hirschfield having you a little earlier than they did. And so now you are at the crossroads of career decisions. And instead of becoming a rabbi, you decide to open a drugstore in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Now, you decide, because you're a Birmingham guy, that you have the freedom as an American to serve anybody that you want at that lunch counter. And you decide to tell all the black people who want to come in and have egg salad sandwiches in your drugstore, your your lunch counter, that they can go down the street because those folks down there, they allow black people to come in for meals. You don't. Is that your freedom? No, because as I said before, discriminating against people simply because of who they are is illegal. Participating with them in particular rituals is a separate and apart freedom. So no, you don't, none of us get the right to decide who we will serve as an individual or not. But we can choose to not participate with people in their, in their equally particular celebrations. And by the way, it's the same kind of thing. It would have been probably helpful if both sides could have appreciated each other's fears more directly in the civil rights movement, I think we actually would have moved farther toward fuller equality than we currently have in this country. Because again, I think most people who are racist 
are not racist because they enjoy being racist. They're afraid, they're angry, they're bitter. We absolutely have to enforce the law. But along the way to enforcement of the law, we have to educate people about why the law is as it is. And education never starts with where the teacher is. It starts with where the student is. But Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, why does it continue generation after generation after generation in every part of the world? As an American, you have seen it and you have read about it in the South. You've read about the lynchings. You've certainly experienced anti-Semitism. You've read the stories in Africa about black Africans uh, decapitating other black Africans because they're from a different tribe. Is there a fundamental flaw in mankind? Boy, I don't know. Different traditions answer that differently. I don't know if there's a fundamental flaw. But I do know that we all have the capacity to hate. By the way, you and me too. And I'm willing to admit that. In fact, anyone who pretends they don't have the capacity to hate inside them is kidding themselves. We all have that. We don't all indulge it the same way, but we all have that. I think it's endemic in who we are, just as the capacity to love is endemic to who we are. But hating the child molester, hating someone who treats another human being savagely, uh, that's a hate that certainly I can acknowledge I've experienced. But hating someone because of where they go to church or the color of their skin, I must tell you, I don't understand where that comes from. I, I don't understand it either, but I'm not so quick to dismiss it, because the truth is we hate the child molester because we think they're guilty of something that is fundamentally evil and harming to other people. For most of human history, people put where you worship and the color of your skin in the same category. It's also true, before we go down this road too far, that we are in a better position today with everything that is wrong and with everything that is resurgent. We are still in a better position on these issues today certainly in the United States, and even globally, than we were 100 years ago. I agree with you. And it's very, very important that the very same people who will act as critics of how far we have to go, that we will also be celebrants of how far we have come. And then the really hard part is, Pat, is that admitting in how far we have come, understand how we have turned many people's lives and presumptions inside out and on their head. And now they're pushing back. Now, I don't want to go backwards, and I won't go backwards. But I also won't close my heart to the fact that what I consider progress has thrown a lot of people and their fundamental beliefs into disarray. And when people feel that you've taken the solid ground out from under them, they will fight hard to get it back. And since I don't want to go back to their sense of solidity before that was built on theories of racial or ethnic or religious or national superiority, but I do want to take them seriously and give them something solid to stand upon. This is the author of You Don't Have to Be Wrong for Me to Be Right, uh, Finding Faith Without Fanaticism. That's one book of Rabbi Brad Hirschfield's career. Uh, uh, How else can people find your work? 
Uh, people can come to the website of the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, which is easy. It's C-L-A-L.org. Klal, C-L-A-L.org, which also happens to be the Hebrew word for inclusive. Uh, that's probably the easiest and shortest path. They can go to the website, thewisdomdaily.com, uh, which is something we produce and is available, though I don't do as much writing for that as I once did because uh, time makes that difficult. But those are two good resources to follow. I'm never more than a couple mouse clicks away on anyone's computer. What about Stand and See? What is that? Uh, so the Stand and See Fellowship is a newly emergent program of which I'm very proud about, which I'm very excited we have managed to create a program in which people entering Christian ministry can have the experience at very, very, very little cost because we have it underwritten because no one goes into ministry to get rich. And especially students, you know, divinity students are the first couple of years after ordination to go to the Holy Land. And as we say, to walk where he walked and stand where he stood and discover for themselves what it means today. Because right now, relative to Israel, Palestine, and the Middle East, in America, we essentially have 100 million or so Christians who think Israel can do no right, and 100 million Christians who think Israel can do no wrong. And that polarization is not good for America, it's not good for Israel, it's not good for anyone. And really, I think it's about raising up a next generation of American religious leaders who, with whatever conviction and politics they hold, would be able to stand in their pulpits as they address their communities and always speak from the same six words. It's more complicated than we know. Because I believe, as I said before, that we will have to put solidity underneath people's feet in times of change, but we can't build solid ground that doesn't also teach and celebrate flexibility and nuance and diversity. So imagine... However tough the question is, however large the problem looms, what if we all, especially as religious leaders, began by telling everyone who will listen, I have my conclusions, I have my convictions, but I'm telling you it's more complicated than we know. And that's why we need each other. We need to engage each other. We need to learn from one another. And that includes people who have very, very different views from the ones that we hold dear. Or as I sometimes say, if every time the God you invoke agrees with you, you're not invoking God, you're invoking yourself and using God as a footnote. Well, let's focus on the hundred million who think that Israel can do no wrong. Are you concerned at all about what often appears to be, among many, the blind support of Israel and virtually all of its positions? I am as concerned about that as I am about the equally morally and ethically troubling position that thinks it has identified good guys and bad guys in the Middle East and pretty much always identifies Israel as the bad guy. Neither position is helpful, especially when you have the luxury of practicing it from 6,000 miles away. Each side likes to thump its Bible to get the answer it already believes. And while I believe each is deeply sincere, I am concerned about both. The whole premise of Stand and See is to raise up a generation, wherever they stand on the divide of no right and no wrong, would say, but I'm really concerned about both positions because really what it means to be a loving friend is that sometimes you have to say tough things. 
But what it means to be a critic who can be heard is you've got to be pretty darn loving before anyone can hear your critique. You know, I think the reason that I have been allowed in so many people's homes and cars as a talk show host for so long is primarily because I am constantly confused. <laughs> and, Questioning, not confused. Uh, well, no, and I'm, I'm curious and so on, but there are many, many things about which I'm confused, and they never seem to, to be clarified, at least in my mind. One of them is the position of so many, and I say so many because I have no idea how many there are, so many fundamentalists, so many evangelical Christians who feel that the answer to their concept of salvation is for Israel to be involved in a worldwide war. Explain that to me, Rabbi, so that I can end this perennial constant confusion. Well, I, you're, I think it's, first of all, very funny. You're asking an Orthodox rabbi to explain fundamentalist Christian doctrine. Yes, because I've asked, I've asked the fundamentalist Christians and haven't been able to come up with an answer so far. Well, my guess is that you haven't been able to come up with an answer that makes sense to you, but since you're not one of them, that, of course, makes sense. You got so it, baby. The best I can do is explain to you why people who don't share my views have them and then do my best to respect them. Please. They certainly have a view which appreciates in messianic redemption and read scripture in such a way that a prelude to that redemption is minimally the return of the Jewish people to the full biblical dimensions of the land of Israel, which includes what is recognized as occupied territory today. And they do believe there will be some kind of cataclysm that will be a part of that as well. I can't say they're wrong because it's a matter of faith. What I can say is that because it's also true that no one can say they're right, I mean, they may say they're absolutely right, but it's a matter of faith, so we don't know. I want to leave as much room as possible for as many people to express their faith as strongly as they can. But that means that if they have that faith, part of what I just said is you've got to leave room for people who disagree with you. And so I think that's really the issue. The issue isn't how we can all agree. I'm actually not terribly interested in everyone agreeing. Because whatever agreements we come to, someone will be an outlier and they'll disagree. For me, the real challenge we face in the 21st century is not how can we all agree. It's how can we all disagree without killing each other. Well, isn't that what the premise is of the book uh, that you're best known for? You don't have to be wrong for me to be right. Yes, that's certainly a part of it. And the subtitle, in many ways, is the most important part, finding faith without fanaticism. I don't want to drive deep faith out of people. I'm willing to hang in and respect people who have views that I don't agree with. But the price of entry is that you have to accord the same respect to me and to others who disagree with you. Stand and See Fellowship, and if people go to standandsee.org, I'll do a little bit of advertising, if they are preparing for careers in ministry or in the first two years post-ordination, they can apply for this trip, and we would love to take them. They can go to standandsee.org. But the price of admission is, if you come on this trip with the premise 
that Israel and only Israel is right, or that Palestine and only Palestine is right, please don't apply. The purpose of this trip is to imagine you can be faithful and steadfast in your views and know that you have things to learn from those with whom you disagree and that you will be a better religious leader, not just for your church and not just on the issue of the Middle East, but for this country and for the world, if you can learn how to stand with conviction and genuine openness to others at the same time. And Brad, as many times as we've had conversations, uh, you and I have never talked about this particular subject. It just never came up. But the subject that I'm talking about now is the spiritual impact that my trip to Israel had on me. Uh, I spent about the same amount of time that your group is spending. You said 10 days? Yeah, typical trip is 10 days. Yeah, and uh, I really didn't know what to expect, and I was really there to do some video and some radio reports. So it was partially a business trip. But for me, there was a reformation because I don't know what I needed reforming. All I know is that there was an energy that I had never experienced in my life anywhere in the world. And um, it's not something that I was really prepared for because I didn't have a preconceived idea of what it is that I would be experiencing there. But whether it was Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or Haifa, uh, whether it was uh, David Ben-Gurion University visiting with some of the faculty, the Negev, across this remarkable land, which I remind our audience is virtually exactly the size of the county that I'm living in right now, Maricopa County in central Arizona, almost exactly the same size as this remarkable country. And I think because of the headlines and because of the history, uh, that everybody automatically assumes that it's a huge geographic. Uh, uh, no, it country. is not. Not at it's all. A lot of people in a small space. So I'm on the East Coast, so I think it's the size of New Jersey. If that's the size of Maricopa County, you are yes. 100 percent right. Yes, but a lot of people in a relatively small space. But please let us at least acknowledge, from our different perspectives, that both Israel and Maricopa County are more attractive than New Jersey. Uh, I'll get in trouble with the New Jerseyans, but uh, but so I will just say that I'm sure there's great things to be found in both, and certainly this time of year, both the state of Israel and Maricopa County are more pleasant places to hang out. Uh, but Israel, uh, Israel got to me. This was in the seventies. Yeah. This was this was in the seventies, and as a we should plan fact, a trip to come back because it's it's a whole new country with all of that same energy. Look, Israel. And Israel and the Holy Land, and Israel and the Holy Land, the Palestinian Authority, are not the conflict. The conflict is one part of life, but life in modern Israel is amazing. In fact, there is no country in the Middle East that feels more like being in the U.S. And I think that's really why Americans connect. Because where can you go where literally you walk the length and breadth of the land, certainly from Jerusalem up into the Galilee, and you are walking Scripture? And at the same time, 
You can be in parts of Jerusalem and all of Tel Aviv and all of Haifa, and you are in a 21st century country that could be right there in Arizona or, you know, Silicon Valley or New York City. All of the energy and openness and diversity and empowerment, and that's an amazing thing. Well, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, Brad, when when I... uh, uh, talked to my tour guide at that time, and a historian, an archaeologist, uh, uh, one of those people you probably have met in the past from Israel, uh, who have all kinds of specialties and wind up showing their country to the rest of us. And he told me, he said, well, I can't take you on a tour tomorrow because it's Shabbat, and during uh, my Sabbath, uh, I can't professionally work, but you can stroll with me. Uh-huh. We we can have a little stroll, and uh, and if you ask me uh, about something, I certainly can answer. And he was answering questions. I said, "Well, now what is that opening?" He said, "Oh, well, that's where Jesus came through on Palm Sunday." I said, right. I said "What? Wait a minute! Right. Wait a minute! We're we're just walking over here. We're going to have coffee, and we're passing the gate that that Jesus rode in on on Palm Sunday." Yes. And he said, no, he says, I know this, because as, as a historian, he says, there's some stories that are apocryphal, and he says, there's some stories that are made up mythologically, but he says, that's true, that's the one over there. And, uh, but then, I really hadn't planned on doing this, uh, because, <laughs> considering the fact that I haven't been back since the 70s, but I do want to tell you this, because I'm telling the audience at the same time, about what happens when you visit this small geographic spot on the planet, and you happen to come upon miraculous things like the good fence. Mm -hmm. And this was at the Lebanese border. Now, there's no border. There was no border guard, just barbed wire. And at that time, Lebanon was at war with itself. Uh, there, There was no missile activity between... Lebanon and Israel, it was Lebanon Christians, Lebanon Muslims. Mm-hmm. And they were firing on one another, bombs going off all the time, missiles, mortars. And my guide took me to this barbed wire area called the Good Fence. And you know about it, of course. I don't know that it still exists, do you know? So it does not exist that way, because obviously because of Hezbollah, which is both a terror organization and a part of the Lebanese government, uh, is a Shi'i political party and militia, uh, and has gone to war against Israel repeatedly. The kind of free exchange you're talking about does not exist. But it's interesting how when you close a door, you can sometimes open a window. Over the last number of years, there was a program called Operation Good Neighbor. was actually run by a friend of mine, uh, who at the time was the head of intelligence for the Northern Command of the Israeli Army. Operation Good Neighbor had one and only one purpose, to provide humanitarian relief, food, medicine, and health care including bringing people from Syria because of the war there into Israel to get medical care they could not get. That program ran for a number of years. 
delivered millions of pounds of food and humanitarian supplies, no weapons, no arms. Israel took no position in the war. Treated literally thousands of women, children, but also injured fighters from either side. It didn't matter. And that program is recently formally closed because, for better or for worse, the Assad regime has really won the war, and so Israel participating would be considered an act of war as opposed to in the midst of a civil war offering humanitarian relief. But the hope is that at least if that stability returns, then at a little point called Kunetra, where the UN has a little white fort, Israel will be able to reopen that border and begin to again offer humanitarian assistance to Syrians regardless of political affiliation or religious belief. And giving people that are listening now a sense of hope and a sense of optimism, even though Good Neighbor has closed down, Prior to that, there was this good fence that yeah. I got a chance to actually see in operation. I said, why are we stopping here at a, a place that is a wooded area between Lebanon and Israel? And you could see the Lebanese soldiers marching, yeah. uh, and but they were not paying attention to the fact that there had been a hole made, a partition made in the barbed wire, and on the Israeli side was a small medical uh, community, a couple of tents, a couple of vehicles, some doctors, some paramedics, some nurses. And some of the Lebanese people were passing their babies through that partition in the fence. Some of the elderly walking through, across the border, in essence, to be cared for by these uh, Israeli military people who happen to be medical people, professionals. Mm -hmm. And the Lebanese soldiers paid no attention, turned their backs on the traffic. And there was a large crowd waiting their turn to pass their sick family members across to the Israeli medical specialists for care, who then were passed back with medicine, bandages, and better health. I'll never forget. To the extent that home countries in the Arab world will allow this, the state of Israel wants to be able to help. I'll tell you right now, people see all these horrible pictures from Gaza and from the Gaza border. And believe me, it's bad on both sides. People only want to believe it's bad on one side. I mean, who they are, I think it's bad on the Israel side. They ignore the Gaza experience. If they want to feel bad about Gaza, they ignore the Israeli experience. Here's the amazing thing. In the midst of even the worst of those days, to the extent that the Hamas government would allow it, tragically they wouldn't often allow it, Israel was receiving patients in ambulances from Gaza to be able to provide medical care that cannot be provided within Gaza itself. I work with a program called the Save a Child's Heart program that at any given time is taking Gazan kids from between the ages of infancy and all the way up, but it's mostly a pediatric program, and is doing everything from valve replacement, heart transplant, 
and a whole series of corrective heart surgeries and literally giving kids a new lease on life. Because when it comes to those kinds of issues, and Israel is not perfect, but Israel is perfectly committed to the premise that when it comes to that kid with a bad heart, there is no politics. I want people to see this just as I did in the 70s, as you continue to see Israel and the Holy Land and the Middle East uh, that surrounds Israel. Uh, Tell me more about the Stand and See trip. So I guess the option is, look, I I think that there is a whole range of people in kind of the more soft evangelical to mainline Protestant world and I am concerned about that, that increasingly are quite hostile to Israel. And I think that hostility is born of a combination of good intention and a certain measure of ignorance. And again, we're back to where we started. The best antidote is sunlight. So we invite people to come on a 10-day trip, but it's not fundamentally about politics or the conflict. The primary desire of Stand and See is don't, if you can enter a life of religious service and can do so and include in your training or formative years, 10 days in the Holy Land, we want you to have that experience. And we'll pay for about 85 to 90% of it for you. How much is it? Look, we charge people, they have to get to the point of embarkation, yes. which is the New York area, and then for 10 days, it's $1,000. That's it. And that includes your flight, it includes Whoa. your hotel. It includes two rooms a day. Wait, excuse me. I, I should tell I should tell the curmudgeons because we have a curmudgeon alarm here in the studio. And every once in a while when a curmudgeon tunes in, I say, listen, you're welcome. That's what this whole show is about. It, yes, it's pro-curmudgeon too, as long as you understand this. Rabbi Brad Hirschfield had no idea that we were even going to be talking about this today. This just is a part of the conversation that just happens on the Brad and Pat show. And, uh, and so, so I just happened to be talking to him about what I experienced in Israel, and he was talking to me about the stand and see that I'd not heard about before. But uh, I'm glad that it came up. But when you're talking about, is it El Al that goes from uh, New York? Life's changed based on the trips. We, we use different carriers, but that, that's secondary. I want to be clear, it's not for anyone who wants. It really is an offering to people studying for ministry yes, or for those who are in the first two years following ordination who are serving religious communities. And it was born of this desire to return a sense of nuance and a certain gentleness to an increasingly polarized conversation. We have people who come whose inclination is much more favorably disposed toward Israel. We have people who come whose disposition is more favorably inclined toward Palestine. But it's not about politics. It's about learning to deepen your faith so that you can appreciate the dignity of those with whom you disagree and then bring that kind of nuance back to the communities you love and lead. Rabbi Brad, you mentioned the Protestants before, and I noticed the complete absence of an invitation for Catholics. Now, I want to know no, what's what going I've on. No, we're relatively new. Um, my experience has been the Catholic seminarians to participate need levels of, partic- uh, of permission, 
and that those permissions are worked through the Catholic Church itself. One of my dreams is actually to find a sponsoring diocese that would work with us to locate seminarians and then do a trip within the framework of the Catholic Church. I've offered to do mixed groups, Protestants and Catholics, and frankly, sometimes the response was a bit chilly from certain Catholic authorities. If anyone is in Catholic seminary and can get permission to be a part of this trip, my heart would sing. How do they get in touch with you? Standandsee.org, just like it spells, S-T-A-N-D-A-N-D-S-E-E, standandsee.org. By the way, I remind all of you right now, the reason I asked is simply this. My name is John Patrick Michael McMahon. Do I really have to pursue this any further? Uh, by the way, listen, before we run out of time, and it's very, very close, these times with you, Brad, go by so fast. All of the prophets that I've ever read about and that I've ever read have seemed to agree on a few things, but one of them seems to be universally that we should love one another. Why is it that it seems... So few people, after all the millennia, are listening. You know, the prophets are funny in pretty much every tradition I know. They talk a lot about love, but they also talk a lot about corrective justice. They're both there. And I think that it's hard because oftentimes the people who scream the loudest about justice don't do it so lovingly. And the love people are often afraid to talk about the harder edge of real love. And I think that actually, like I said before, Pat, we're doing better than we've done in recorded human history. We've got a long way to go. But for me to be a person of faith fundamentally means being optimistic about the future and feeling that we're never alone in the present. You know, in my tradition, there's an ancient rabbinic teaching from a book from roughly the time of the first apostles. And they say that a person does not have to finish the job, but they're not free to opt out of participating in it. And I think that's where we are. We've got a long way to go. We don't have to finish, but we've got to at least move the ball a little bit down the field. And that actually... Every one of us can do. Forget globally. Go home tonight and talk to a person in that spirit, and you are actually moving the, field, the ball of prophetic love down the field of human history. I thank you so much, Brad, for allowing us also to share in your optimism. And perhaps if we could get the Catholics to get off of their buns for a while and start kicking this idea around of sending some of those seminarians over to Israel so they'll know what they're talking about, then I don't have to kick all the bishops off my chessboard. I thank you so <laughs> don't much. Don't do that. We need them to. <laughs> Brad Hirschfield. Rabbi Brad Hirschfield. You know, he says this over and over and over again. You don't have to be wrong for me to be right. And I also say some things repetitively, like thank you for listening to The God Show on the Star Worldwide Network.